Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. All children deserve the love and affection that come from being in a family. Most importantly, children deserve to have their needs met in a permanent and loving home. The original ideal of the foster care system was to provide such fundamental necessities until a child is reunited with his or her biological parents, or adopted. However, the present reality shows us something entirely different. The child welfare system has declined to the point where it now caters to the needs of the adults rather than those of the children. In this episode, Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Communications, sits with Naomi Schaefer-Riley, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, to discuss her new book, No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists are Wrecking Young Lives. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm joined today by Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Naomi is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on child welfare and foster care issues. Specifically, her work analyzes the role of faith-based civic and community organizations in changing the foster care and adoption services landscape. She also studies how socioeconomic factors affect foster care placement and services and the impact of the opioid crisis on child welfare. She's currently a senior fellow at Independent Women's Forum. Ms. Riley is the author of six books, including Be the Parent, Please, Stop Banning Seesaws, and Start Banning Snapchat, Strategies for Solving the Real Parenting Problems. Her 2013 book, Till Faith Do Us Part, How Interfaith Marriage is Transforming America, was a New York Times book review editor's choice. Her most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, is No Way to Treat a Child, how the foster care system, family courts, and racial activists are wrecking young lives. Naomi Schaefer-Riley, welcome to Act in Line. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to, as I often do in these interviews, borrow a question from your AEI colleague, Jonah Goldberg. What's your book about? My book is about the way that the child welfare system has be- sort of grown around the needs of adults rather than the best interests of children. So... What are some of the examples of the way that the system is designed that way? Because I've, I've, for years, I lived in Chicago for a long time, and one of the ways that I always try to explain the problems within uh, a different enormous bureaucracy, the Chicago public school system, is that it's a system not designed for the benefits of the kids that it's educating, but for the adults that run the system. Yeah. What are some examples of the way that that system is designed for the benefits of the adults and not the kids? Well, the first thing I think to think about is the ideology that drives child welfare agencies. Um, They are driven by what they would call family preservation or family reunification. So after they find out that a child has been abused or neglected, the first question that these agencies and caseworkers ask themselves is how can we keep this family together or get this family back together as quickly as possible? 
And I think for a lot of people that, you know, makes perfect sense in the abstract. Children belong with their families, of course, and those are the people who are generally best equipped to raise them. Um, But these are parents who have already abused or severely neglected their kids. And that's not the question we need to ask. And I compare it to um, a case of domestic violence. Uh, If you have a police who have been called because a woman has been beaten by her husband or boyfriend, um, the first question that law enforcement does not ask is, how soon can we get you guys back together? Um, But that is absolutely the question that we ask when it comes to children who have been maltreated. Um, And the reason that we ask that question is because we feel really bad for the adults. Um, And we should. Many of these adults have really been through the ringer in their lives. They are living in poverty. They have suffered from unemployment, from a lack of education. A lot of them, frankly, an overwhelming number of them are suffering from substance abuse or mental illness or a combination thereof. And many of them have even been raised in the foster care system themselves. So we absolutely should have empathy and sympathy for these adults. The question is, how should that influence what we do about the children involved? Um, And I argue that the child protection system still has to be about protecting the children, even if we, um, you know, even if the adults have suffered as well. So will the case be that it shouldn't be the guiding principle then um, of trying to seek family reunification. So what to what extent do you think it would be wise to factor in that as a goal? Because you'll get a lot of arguments that, you know, having uh, both obviously having both biological parents, um, being in a home with both biological parents is better for the children. Of course, these are exceptional cases, right, where there's already been problems with abuse or neglect. Um what kind of policy change, how much would you recommend that they move off of that approach? Do you move off of it entirely? Do you come up with a new rubric for trying to decide which uh, mother and father are the type that are likely, most likely to succeed if they pursue a path of reunification? What should the policy change be there? I think that um, it's actually not in in some ways a policy change. Uh, So we have a law that's on the books called the Adoption Safe Families Act. It was passed in the 1990s with a bipartisan coalition of legislators who all felt that children were languishing in foster care for far too long. Foster care is supposed to be something that is temporary, not kind of a, a permanent limbo that kids are sent into. And so these legislators came up with a timeline. Like it might not be the perfect timeline, um, but I think it's a pretty good one. And it says that if kids have been in foster care for 15 out of the last 22 months, that a state is supposed to move to sever parental rights. Um, And I think the idea there was that kids, especially young kids, um, need to form a secure attachment to an adult of some sort or another. They need to have the sense that there is an adult there who is going to meet their physical and emotional and psychological needs. And sort of the way we shuttle kids in and out of their biological home to various foster homes and other relatives um, is not serving their needs in the long run. Um, So right now, the average time a kid spends in foster care is 20 months. In some states, the average is actually as high as 30 months. Um, And for some kids, you know, for a good 15% of the kids, um, there's actually uh, three, more than three or four years that they're in the foster care system. So that, as I said, is just an enormously detrimental impact on their future lives, on their brain development, on every aspect of their development, frankly. And so I think the first policy we need to keep in mind here is kids 
cannot wait forever. Um, there should be a timeline and, and we need to enforce that. A lot of family courts just completely flout, flout this law. They do not pay attention to it. They think parents always deserve another chance. And I think that frankly, when you're dealing with very young kids, like babies who've been born substance exposed, we should probably even shorten that timeline more to closer to a year. If a mother who was addicted to drugs has a baby and after an entire year has not shown progress toward kicking that addiction, we should not be leaving that baby in foster care just waiting for her to clean up her act. If you talk about the foster care system itself, um, how well-functioning or not well-functioning is the actual foster care element of it? I mean, anybody who's watched um, too many episodes of Law & Order has certainly seen depictions of dysfunctional foster care circumstances where, you know, and again, of course, fictional um, – but, you know, depictions of people who are in it for the check that they get, um, how well-functioning or not well-functioning is the actual foster care element of this? So I, when we think about foster families, I mean, the first thing that's useful to think about is though though they get the headlines, um, the, the, the children who are taken into foster care are still typically much safer than they would be remaining in their biological home. Um, when they are put back, the chances for maltreatment are quite high. The average foster family, uh, the, the likelihood of abuse in an average foster family is about 0.27% um, compared to the general population, which is about 1%. So foster families are still safer. That being said, there's still a lot of inadequate foster families out there, and there's still people doing this for the check, unfortunately. There was a, a man I talked to in New Orleans who told me that you know his wife really wanted them to do foster care, and he was kind of reluctant. And he went to an informational meeting that New Orleans had for potential foster families, and he said he left that meeting thinking that they should do foster care so the other people in the room did not. Um, there was a woman there who actually said, do I have to keep the foster kids in the same part of my home that I keep my biological children in? Um, and so I think we do have to acknowledge that there is a quality problem. Every state in this country just about reports a shortage of foster families. And what happens when you have a shortage is you start to get desperate. So I think um, when you look at that, you know, some people say, well, maybe Maybe we should be paying people more. Maybe you know we're we're not paying people enough to do foster care, and if we paid people more, we'd get a higher quality of parent. Um, I don't think that the the surveys and the interviews I've done have really bear that out. If you talk to middle class foster parents, the people who I think we really want doing this. By the way, not because poor parents can't love or take care of foster kids. I just think these kids have been so traumatized that putting them into a home where the adults are worried about where their next rent check is coming from is not a good idea for their long term. A place with more resources does seem to make yeah. more sense there, yeah. But um but how to get more of those people? I mean, middle-class foster families, you know, when they talk about why they quit and about half of them quit within the first year by the way, is that um the way they're treated by the system. I mean, you know, they they can deal with the behaviors of the child with all of the challenges of dealing with a child who's experienced pain and trauma. But the way they are mistreated by the caseworkers, by family court, it is so upsetting. I mean, family court judges, you know, treat them like 
um, glorified teenagers. Judges will tell them we're not interested in your perspective, even if they've been caring for a kid for a year or two. And they see this child every day in their home and they want to add something, you know, at a permanency hearing, a judge will just not be interested. Um, Caseworkers will drop off kids at their house without giving them complete information about medical needs or even a history of sexual abuse, which would obviously influence um, you know, where you're going to, whether you're going to place that child in your home or whether that child can be safe around other children. Um, so I think a lot of foster parents really get frustrated by the way they're treated. People sometimes ask me whether they should do foster care. And I say, well, you know, how would you feel about spending every day at the DMV? I, I could imagine wh- what kind of reaction that that would elicit from people. So how, what would be a recommendable way then to approach getting better quality, I guess is the best way to put it, um, people participating in the foster care system who are better able to handle those circumstances if the kind of you know, financial incentive part of it that you were talking about doesn't seem to be working. And of course, everything has unintended uh, consequences as well. So you do get those nightmare stories of, of the people who seem to be in it primarily for a check. Um, what what changes should happen in order to bring better people more equipped and ready to be foster parents into that system? So I think a lot of um, churches and faith-based organizations in this country in the last really 10 or 15 years have just done enormous work to make the life of foster parents uh, better and more bearable. They have really transformed the way we recruit train and support these families. Um, So in terms of, you know, getting better people, they have, you know, recognized, which I think a lot of us should have probably recognized much earlier that putting up a picture of a child on the nightly news is not necessarily an effective way to get foster parents. And so a lot of pastors have just gone into their churches and said, you know, these are the six kids who need homes in our zip code tonight. That has an entirely different and more immediate effect on people. Um, the training is much different. Um, they obviously do all the things the state requires them to do, like tell you how many fire extinguishers you need in your house. Um, but they also add a lot of information, not just about um, you know what your faith says to do about foster care and adoption, but also um, you know they many of them have added curricula around trauma informed care. Um, so they actually have the tools to deal with the children who are coming into their home. And many states really were not giving them those tools. Um, And the final element that I think some of these organizations have just done extraordinarily well with is supporting foster families, is creating a community around them of people who understand what foster care is, who will do respite care, uh, you know, if the parents need a break for some reason, um, who will, uh, you know, build furniture at the last minute, Um, Or who will just, you know, pray for these families. Um, And so having that support, I think, makes many foster families more likely to stay in this um, and and more likely to feel like their their work is being appreciated, that it's having some measurable impact and also that they can go about their lives in a in a normal way. In fact, Um, people talk about foster friendly churches and sometimes they mean by that. a church that tends to be more multiracial, perhaps, but they also mean that um, it's a church where people will not stare at them or shame them if their child is having a meltdown, you know, in the middle of a service. Um, it's a much more accepting environment, and foster parents sort of feel less 
judged um, in those uh, in those situations. So I think that a lot of the work that could be done to recruit better foster families is frankly going to be done in our religious communities. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, the state, I think, should just, you know, treat these people better. And to the extent that we can um, have kind of legislators tell them to do that, I think that would be great. Um, but I think in terms of the actual supporting of their work, um, you know, that's going to come from civil society. There's an important subsidiarity element to that, where you've got those organizations that know the parents and families that would be the the foster parents a lot better than the state is ever going to. I think there's also an element in there that borrows from your other AEI colleague, Yuval Levin, of in institutions that are functioning and serving the purpose that they're supposed to, which is you know religious communities, church organizations that are well-functioning are the kind that are going to know the needs of parents like that and be able to attend to them uh, in a way that, as you know, we see in all kinds of examples, the state is just never really in an ability to know what people actually need and is overly bureaucratized and deals with closer, hewing closer to rules and regulations than the actual needs of the parents there. Yeah, you're never going to want the state to raise your child. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> or any child. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So uh, I want to come back to something that you mentioned. You had mentioned family courts. Uh, is this is the problem in family courts similar to the one in the system, uh, the foster care system, where it is, uh, you know, designed for the benefits of the adults in the system and not the kids? And particularly, that is it also guided by the idea of family reunification being the primary goal or are there different uh, endemic problems within the courts and legal part of all of this? Family court is largely guided by the same ideology. Um, again, the timeline situation and family courts really do have quite a bit of control over the timelines that kids are on. Um, you know, I, I tell people that you know, just one one visit I took to um, to Queens Family Court here in New York City, and I sat in on maybe nine or ten hearings, and all but one of them uh, ended in a continuance. Um, they they these cases never seem to end. Judges never seem to want to make a final decision. Um, and especially with young kids to say to them, oh, you know, uh, to a to a three year old, oh, we'll see your case again in six months. I think just failing to recognize what a significant chunk of that child's life is being frittered away while we wait for the bureaucracy to get its act together is just it's outrageous. Um, and, and courts really do have, uh, you know, kind of the final say over these timelines. So I think it's important to to keep that in mind. Um, you know, they also, you know, certainly there's just, it, it is just the bureaucracy. I don't think the, you know, if you, if you talk to enough people in the legal field, they will readily acknowledge that the best and the brightest are not going into family law. Um, these are not, uh, you know, the, the family court judges and the lawyers representing um, both the families and the children are, are just are not the people that you would necessarily want to be doing this. And many foster families will say to me, like family court feels to them like kangaroo court, like they don't really understand what laws and rules are being followed. It just seems like it's it's all up to the judges. And of course, you know, lots of people would say that about, uh, you know, different kinds of courtrooms. But I think in family court, it really is a problem. And then it's um, because it kind of has this feel of like not being a real court. 
um, then higher courts are very reluctant to overturn any of their decisions because they feel like, well, the judge kind of knows everybody on the ground. And so they've reached this decision. And, and you know, how could a higher court come in and overturn that? And so I think that in addition to laws being flouted, then no one above the family court is really enforcing them either. I'm reminded of the quip amongst uh, lawyers that uh, everybody gets their decade in court. Um, yes. Of course, not to be the design, but that is the way that our legal system largely functions. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'm going to get to a couple of things here. Um, with regard to what you said of like, you know, a lot of this ends in continuances and it seems like the judge doesn't want to make a decision. Uh, why Why do you think that is? Is it is it a fear? You said that they're not really at risk of being um, overturned by higher courts. Is it a fear of that if they make a decision to place a child in one place or another that um, sometime further down the road as circumstances reveal themselves, they're going to look like they made the wrong decision and they're just afraid of acting too quickly as a, uh, because of that? Or are there other reasons why it seems to drag out so long? No, I really think it's a sense of adults as the victims. I think that adults are the most capable people of describing to you their situations and their feelings. And so in some ways, they're always going to have the upper hand in court. Um, and this is one one development that has happened recently that that makes me very concerned. Um, there's supposed to be in many courtrooms a CASA, court appointed special advocate, who is supposed to be someone who meets with the child involved regularly and then goes to family court hearings and represents that child's best interest to the judge. Um, in the last few years, uh, CASAs in some states have actually announced a decision to become instead of um, uh, advocates just for the children. They're now advocates for the whole family. And so now instead of that child having a singular voice, they're venting their, um, their, their interests are kind of shoved into the family's general interests and no one is really speaking up just for the child. And I think that's really the direction that the court system and the child welfare agencies are moving in. Um, and I just, I, they're not, it's true, they're not criminal or civil courts, but I do think that we, when we look at our general court system, there's a reason we have an adversarial system. And it's not because like we're just mean people. Um, we have this system because we think that everybody's voice should be represented individually in the courtroom and that then the judge should be able to hear all that and, and make a decision. But once you start, you know, imagine if you were in a you know criminal court and you just had like um, you know, one lawyer representing, you know, the, the defendant and the plaintiff. And, you know, well, we've all reached this sort of agreement together and we're just going to present that to the judge. That is the way family court operates in a lot of cases. And I think it really does a disservice to the children. Do family courts suffer from some of the same problems as other places in the legal system where you, you had talked about uh, the families from which these children biologically come often uh, being having uh, problems, being below the poverty line, having drug addiction problems, probably not having the resources for uh, legal counsel in the way that people who are more well off do. And even with the case of foster parents and other people represented in this process, lawyers are expensive, right? Um, and we know that across 
uh, a lot of, especially major cities, but in a lot of other places too, um, you know, legal aid and public defenders and systems like that, or I, I assume also in case officers in terms of um, foster care system, they're probably undermanned as a lot of those offices are. What influence, if that's if I'm correct in those assumptions, does that have on the whole legal process? So I do I do think family courts are under-resourced. Um, I would like to see more family court judges and more um, you know, legal staff in these places. Um, if for no other reason, then I would like to see the cases get heard faster. Um, there's there's absolutely a need for for more resources, but there's also a need for you know the judges to sort of exercise more of their authority. So you know I I do think that you know sometimes conservatives have shied away from the issue of of child welfare reform because they go to the table and all they hear is you know we just need more resources and I think that that's probably true to a large extent, but that's not the whole story. And so in a sense we're sort of missing conservative voice. Um, on some of these policies because they're so reluctant to sort of say, um, you know, to, to get into the resources debate. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think, um, you know, when you look at child welfare agencies, too, we're not recruiting the best and the brightest and we're not training them well. And some of these agencies have a 40 percent turnover rate. So even when you do train them well, they're not on the, you know, on the agency's uh, workforce for long enough to sort of achieve veteran status and to start to know what they're doing. Um, I, I talk in the book about how we should change the way we recruit and train caseworkers and child protection services. I think it should be much more like law enforcement. We're asking typically young women to go into some very dangerous situations, to knock on the door, you know, in a public housing project. You're not sure who's on the other side. You're going you're gonna to start making some very difficult um, accusations and asking some difficult questions about the people in that home. Um, it is not surprising that many of these caseworkers are attacked every year. Um, and then we're asking them to do essentially the job of law enforcement investigation, to look around, to see what kind of drug paraphernalia is there, um, to see whether there's evidence that there's like a mother's boyfriend in the home who's probably not safe for the kid. Um, to ask like you know some some really difficult questions and take in some difficult information, um, but we're not training them like law enforcement, and we're not recruiting. I think the same level of people as go into law enforcement, and and we really need to think about child protection in that way. How uh, how big an issue are drug and dependency problems within the entirety of the system? I think our drug crisis in this country is really driving our child welfare crisis. Um, if you talk to most experts, they'll tell you probably upwards of 80% of cases in our child welfare system have drugs involved in them. It's not to say that's the only problem, but drugs are definitely involved. The typical case uh, of you know child welfare problem in this country um, first being reported is a young child. Um, those are kids who really cannot, um, you know, fend for themselves. An infant, obviously, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, needs a constant level of attention, feeding, changing, burping, you know, making sure they're sleeping safely. If they're sick, you know, monitoring their temperature. Um, it's really hard to do that when you have a severe addiction or mental illness problem. Um, and then even as children get a little bit older, when they enter what I like to, what I fondly refer to with my own kids as the mobile, but totally irrational stage, um, <laughs> when they can, you know, they're trying to run out the front 
front door, or, you know, maybe they are trying to touch a hot stove or swallow their siblings Legos, whatever it is. Um, it's really hard. It's a really hard stage of parenting that requires a lot of monitoring, even for a totally sober parent. And so you find substance abuse really gets in the way of that level of parenting that needs to happen. And those kids are actually in significant danger. When kids get a little bit older, you know, if you have a 10 year old, you know, they're able to go ask for help. They're seeing a teacher regularly. Um, you know, they know how to procure food if there's none in the house. Um, and they know how to tell another adult if something is going very wrong. But for very young children, um, the substance abuse crisis in this country is, is causing them enormous levels of harm. And, um, and our, uh, the conversation that we're, you know, they're having now, we're having now about how, how harmless substance abuse is, I just don't think really takes into account um, these kids who are suffering. The, uh, the third entity that you call out in the subtitle of the book, which is how the foster care system, family courts, and racial activists are wrecking young lives. Um, what are you seeing from racial activists in this system that is uh, causing problems? Sure. So there's um, a movement that's grown up called the Abolish Foster Care Movement. It's kind of come up in parallel with the defund or abolish the police movement. Um, these are folks who not only want to abolish foster care, they want to end mandated reporting, they want to end drug testing for infants and mothers. Um, they want to uh, limit police intervention in domestic violence because they see that oftentimes kids are reported as being in danger when uh, police intervene and when a, 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 you know you have two two partners engaged in domestic violence. Um, and they want to do all these things because they see that a disparate rate of black children, are uh, being reported to the system, investigated, and are placed in foster care. Um, that is totally true. They are, um, but they don't. What they don't tell you is what is really behind that number. Um, black children in this country are twice as likely to suffer abuse and neglect as their white peers, and they're actually three times as likely to die from abuse or neglect uh, as their white peers. Um, so I think that that's, uh, that level of maltreatment is something that we need to answer, um, and it's the job of Child Protective Services to get involved in those cases, um, regardless of whether, you know, the columns and our spreadsheets come out even. Um, so that is kind of like the, the first area. They, they're, they're happy to upend um, foster care to keep Black kids in unsafe situations um, in order to make the numbers come out even. The second way that you see this racial activism having an impact on the foster care system is that these people want to engage in um, race matching when it comes to placing kids in foster care or certainly for adoption. Um, so, you know, there's a judge in New Orleans, for instance, who has just simply decided that, um, you know, black kids should not be in the foster care system, or if they are, they should never be um, placed with a white family. Um, even adoption agencies are getting into this act now. They will regularly tell white families that um, they should feel guilty about adopting a black child, um, that they need to check their white privilege, that they're doing an enormous amount of harm to these children by taking them into their home. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, a law in the books called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act that was also passed in the 90s. Again, bipartisan group of legislators who said thousands of Black kids are languishing in foster care because groups like the National Association of Black Social Workers has said it's better for them to be there than for them to be with a white family. And these legislators said that's ridiculous. What these kids need, like all kids need, are safe, loving, and stable homes, regardless of the race of their caretakers. 
And so they passed this law that says you, you can't discriminate when you're placing kids for foster care adoption. But unfortunately, the racial activists, I think, are having their way and more and more family courts and child welfare agencies and adoptive agencies are, are actually taking race into account. And what you'll see is fewer and fewer black kids getting to be in those loving homes. Is this just another case, I think, similar to education, where the kind of people inclined to this way of thinking, which is then has it reinforced throughout the education and credentialing process, um, are really the only ones coming into those systems? And uh, more, you mentioned earlier, in in some circumstances, uh, not having conservative voices at the table, uh, in part because the answer that's always thrown up to them is just more resources, Um, but that you don't have people thinking outside of that ideological box who are coming up, seeking the education seeking the credentialing to then be involved in the foster care and adoption system. And thus, this ideology is just kind of taken over in a similar way that I think we see in education where the people who are interested in becoming teachers because they think they can change the world are inclined to this certain ideological way of thinking and think that's a way to influence future generations towards the social justice ends that they desire. Yeah, there's definitely a pool problem going on. But then, yeah, that's absolutely reinforced. Um, When you look at programs for social work, for instance, a lot of these programs are just revolve around cultural sensitivity and, and that sort of thing, not, you know, revolving around, like I said, the kind of training that I think you'd see more in law enforcement. Um, And so absolutely the, the people who are staffing our child welfare agencies um, who are staffing family courts are definitely sort of already steeped in this ideology by the time they arrive. Um, I think it's also being reinforced because in some ways there is so there are so few resources in child welfare. There are a few big um, left-leaning foundations that have come in and really tried to influence policy uh, in the way that they want, like the Casey Foundation, um, and through their money, because it doesn't take a lot of money to sort of influence child welfare, um, they have been able to change the way a lot of state agencies operate um, and really push them more into these ideological positions than they already were. You know, the question of how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. This is a huge system um, with a lot of problems that you've detailed. Where where do you begin to try to make the changes necessary to reorient this system away from primarily serving the interests of the adults that are involved in it and having more regard and a primacy of importance placed upon the interests of the children who are a part of that system. You know, where where would we really start if we're thinking about incremental reform, ways to start moving the ball down the road to the kind of vision for this that I think we would both agree on would be better for kids. Where do we start on all of this? So I think if you're, you know, if you're a legislator or involved in the policy making process, I would really just start with the two federal laws I mentioned and say, um, can we just at least enforce the laws that are on the books? <laughs> that would that would be a great start because I think that those laws came from the right place. Um, they came from the sensible middle of this country and probably where most Americans are, which is, 
you know, A, kids should not have to wait forever in foster care, and B, when we place them in foster care or out of foster care for adoption, what should matter most is that they be placed with safe, loving families, not that their skin colors match the skin color of their parents. So those are, I think, two things that most Americans can agree on, and if we can get legislators to really start enforcing those on state agencies, I think we'd be in a good place to start. Um, in terms of sort of your average person who's just interested in this issue, um, I would definitely recommend, you know, um, obviously there's foster care, um, you know, finding finding your way to, to do foster care, but also just supporting people who do foster care. I mean, there's the, the churches and faith-based organizations I've talked about have produced so many roles, you know, kind of smaller part roles for people who are willing to help out foster families. And I think that those are vital in order to ensure that quality foster families are continuing this work. Um, if, your, uh, if, if your CASA, your court-appointed special advocate program has not kind of gone you know, fully crazy and is only representing the interests of families, not children, I encourage people to volunteer for that. Not just because I think it will do a great service to children whose um, best interests you can represent in court, but also because I think it helps to have another set of eyes on what goes on in these court hearings. Um, having sort of educated, responsible citizens actually watch what is going on, whether laws are being enforced, whether it seems like the judge kind of has it in for someone. Like, I I really think that, you know, that can really affect the way um, these professionals behave in court when they know somebody is watching. Um, and so getting more involved in that, I think, is also a useful way to improve the system. In closing, I want to ask you two questions about the conversations that you had with people who were involved at all levels of the system that informed this book. Um, obviously, this is a, uh, an area in which you're, you know, uh, have subject matter expertise. You've been studying it for a while. In, in the conversations you had with people that went into writing this book, was there anything that surprised you that you learned from the process of, of researching this book that you, you hadn't come across before or you didn't know was as bad as it was or an area that needed more attention that you hadn't uh, looked at as closely previously? I think probably the part that most surprised me since I started researching child welfare is I think I was under the impression, and I suspect a lot of other people are too, just based on kind of um, you know the way they consume news, is that the the child abuse and child neglect are really hard to prevent and deal with because they happen behind closed doors. I always thought, well, you know, what are, what are we going to do? We're not going to, you know, knock down people's doors and demand to see how they're treating their children. And, and all of these stories of, you know, children being locked in basements and that kind of thing. And the neighbors saying, oh, I had no idea. Um, I think those serve to reinforce this view. But in fact, the vast majority of kids in the child welfare system, you know, we, they're people we know about. I mean, we're just reinvestigating and allowing children to be reabused and re-neglected over and over again. The chances of repeat maltreatment are so high. And so I just, I think just if you, if you have the impression that this is just a hidden problem and our hands are tied, I think you kind of have this misapprehension of the child welfare system. We know what's going on, even in these, you know, horrific cases of, you know, child fatalities. Um, you know, we've had a slew of them in New York City in recent months, um, but they've happened, you know, also recently in Baltimore and Los Angeles, other places. I mean, these are kids who are reported by 
by neighbors, by teachers, by you know, law enforcement. Um, and, and child welfare agencies and family courts chose to leave them in these dangerous situations. And I think that is the policy we need to be focused on and, and sort of disabuse people of this notion that child abuse is just something that's hidden and there's nothing we can do anything about. You obviously talked to a lot of people who have made the decision uh, on you know, both a good decision and a bad decision, depending on who they are as individuals, to become foster parents. From your conversations there, for people out there who may feel a calling to do that, what should they know? What are the most important things that they should know before making the decision to want to become a foster parent? And what questions should they be asking themselves before they get into it to make sure that they're prepared and that they're right for this? Well, I guess I would say, you know, asking yourself about whether you're in a community that will support this. And I mean, I think a lot of people would say, you know, sure, I have friends who are supportive and that side of thing. Like that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Like I'm talking about people who are um, you know, there's one group in in Colorado where I spent some time called Project 127. They actually require you to bring along four friends to go through an entire uh, half day of training with them so that, you know, they know not exactly not just what you're getting into. And then at the end, like they literally have to sign a form saying this is the specific area I'm going to help you with. And I think, you know, every foster parent should have that kind of team set up in advance because, it becomes very hard to ask for that kind of help while you're in the middle of a crisis. Um, so kind of finding that community ahead of time is really important. I would say being prepared for this bureaucracy and, and trying to find an organization to train and help you that will help you navigate through that is really important. You know, the people I talk to who train through these religious organizations were able to call up somebody and say, like, this is happening to me. Is it normal? Do you think this child is going to be taken away? Did I say the wrong thing to the caseworker? I mean, these the cases of retaliation that go on um, with child welfare agencies where a foster parent, you know, complains about something and a caseworker just decides we've had enough of you, um, I think are, are really just devastating to these families. And so do you have someone who can kind of help you act as a go-between um, and and can you put up with this crap? I mean, it really is a hard question to ask. Um, and can your children do that too? Like I, I think probably the the hardest thing for many people to understand, and I don't think that it's immediately obvious, is like you're bringing a child into your home who has experienced so much pain and trauma, and and they're going to talk about it. I mean, not always, but sometimes they will, and are you and are we willing to kind of expose our children to that information and that conversation? I think it's a really hard decision for families to make, particularly in kind of the era that we live in, you know, very much kind of like the helicopter bubble wrapping parents. Like we want to, and reasonably in many cases, protect our children from um, the kind of things these kids have experienced. So, you know, are you willing to, you know, to expose your family to that? It's a difficult question. Naomi Schaefer-Riley is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on child welfare and foster care issues. Her most recent book, which we've been discussing today, is No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us today on Act Online. Thank you. Thank you. 
As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.